0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
2: It's usually best to start with a reading, I think, because you need to acclimatize to somebody's voice. For some reason, I don't read in London very often. You must have far too many things to do to attend readings or whatever. But um, I don't tend to work in London very often, and I'm always slightly nervous that I will either get the front three rows of expats, (laughs) all wearing kilts, and sporting a bridey each, or that I will get an audience who don't understand a word I'm saying. So it could go either way. So what I'll do is read for about nine minutes just so you get used to the sound of my voice until I get used to it too. Um, The cover of this book, thank you very much to the Granta people, for making such a beautiful thing out of the manuscript I I sent them. I tussled with this cover for quite some time because it was one thing writing about the people in your family and quite another exposing how they look Mm -hmm. to the critical gaze of a literary public. Mm -hmm. Um, That's my mother, that's my sister, (coughs) and the little one with her mouth clamped tight shut in the middle is me. I'm very glad in the end they did put this on the front. Um, I I realised that one of the reasons I didn't want them there was vanity. You know, if you have a favourite book, or you have read a book and you go and see the movie of it, they never quite look the way Miss Havisham should. They never quite look the way Elizabeth Bennet should. There's always something in your head that moves slightly, and I wanted it to work as a piece of fiction, even although the factual events in it are true. I don't know whether that makes any sense. If it doesn't, you can grill me on it later. And of course it's called This Is Not About Me. This is my family. We're arranged on a sofa and too close because the sofa is meant for two. It was the photographer's idea. That's my mother on the left side, my sisters on the right. I'm in the middle, emerging from between the adult's knees, the only one who's five. Maths renders my mother 45, but she looks older, everybody did then. Her body is angled towards the centre of the picture, but her face is full on, eager, lipstick so red it's black. Cora's the opposite bookend and she's full on, all over. I can't account for the bruising on her ankles, but the shoes were from Corner Duncans in the sale. Proper stilettos with V-shaped toes, lino-puncturing heels. She's wearing no stockings so her legs are pale grey and cloudy as marble. Her hair, however, is black. It's the blackest thing in a picture with lots of black. It was black to start with, but she dyed it with blue stuff, stuff somebody told her Elvis used, so it came out very black indeed, no flecks of light, and sprayed to within an inch of freeze-dried. Her face is chalky and square, but her hands are lovely. They're a spare set of hands for somebody indolent, somebody like Zaza Gabor, and shall you look close and see the tops of her fingers are darker than the rest. They're yellow, like Sobrani-filtered tips. No rings, though. For a number of reasons, rings weren't chorus thing. things. Her armrests got two fag burns and an ashtray with a full strength on the lip, threading wispy ectoplasm across her knees. There was always a fag, there was always a fag burn. So these details make the composition evocative. There is a photographer present, so we're not at ease, not really. But if every picture tells a story, we want this story to suggest we amount to something, that we are at the very least getting by in our best duds. Our bravest faces, we're trying our damnedest to look right at home. Home itself, or at least the front room that makes the context for this picture, is less carefully composed. The clock over the mantelpiece reads ten past four, but the window says it's dark outside, so it must be winter. Brass urns, like funerary ornaments, clutter the sill alongside a cut glass bowl, a stag's head in brass and two porcelain dancers. The curtains have got patterns of flowers, the wallpaper's got tiny hanging baskets in falling rows separated by stripes, the carpet has speckles and the sofa has a swirly jungle design with interlocking palm fronds. Each of the sofa arms has a floral cover and the rug has stripes and roses. There are three chairs, a wicker rocker with embroidered cushions and a pair of short bare legs are poking into the picture from the right, suspended by unknown means. That means it's a doll. And if it's a doll, it's mine. I am implicated in these surroundings by this evidence alone. We must have looked at this room with its no space and nothing matching every day and not turned a hair. We made it. This was normal. This was ours. Even the clothes, our hand-picked choices, shout. My mother's in a pallid suit with a black fern patter. Cora is in a dark, drindle dress spattered with vast, white lotus flowers and a collar that capes the shoulders of her otherwise bare arms. She's got big gypsy hoops and enough mascara to block strong sunlight. I am mostly party frock and ankle socks, things sent all the way from my Auntie Doreen in America where everybody is rich. From the look on my face, I'm trying to hide something. I am. All the same, my mother is smiling, my sister is not. Her shoulders are high, chin forward like a boxer, her half-shut eyes wondering who the hell you think you are looking at her bone china wrists are crossed just so. She looks within an ace of spontaneous combustion. She looks exactly like Cora. But we share the sofa, we look at the lens. We, I say. We, our hip bones, must be touching. My mother thought I was the menopause. She came to terms with the fact that I wasn't in Buckredden Maternity Home in Kilwinning because that was where you went if you were in labour local doctors gave out the impression there was no choice. Pregnant meant going to Buck Redden. there was no question. Maybe the word suggested duress and distress, or maybe it was an age when pregnant women were kept mostly out of sight, but most people missed off the maternity home part and called the hospital simply Buck Redden. Told I was born in Buck Redden, I thought it was a weak country village, not a building. I was 16 before I caught sight of the word on a sign as I shot by it on a bus and turned in time to see a small red sandstone house, late Victorian with the look of a once posh hotel, buck-redden maternity home, the sound of pennies dropping all the way to air on the worn shiny double seat of a Scottish Motor Transport single-decker, I tried to imagine what it was like inside. I pictured artillery ranks of bloated women, thin sheets, the occasional nurse with an origami hat like Florence Nightingale, stuff off the television. I pictured babies in another room, each cased in its own box, howling under strong electric light. I had to be among the babies somewhere, but that was as far as the picturing went. I couldn't picture the absurdly named delivery suites because I had no idea what delivery was or what such a suite might contain. But I could imagine bottles all right. Bottles and nappies, the standard shorthand for newborns. I knew babies were wet and troublesome and noisy. They were easy to spoil and they got powdered milk, formula in bottles. That was everything I knew about babies. They tried to make me breastfeed, my mother said once in a rare burst of revelation. It was horrible. I told them I was too old, but the sister didn't care. It's for baby, she said. Baby? As though a baby would care any different. The fear of the ward, sister, however, made her have a go, but it hurt. It was only when her attempts led to my throwing up blood twice that she was let stop. I told them, she said, but you've no dignity in these places. You can't do that kind of thing when you're forty. Anyway, you did fine in the bottle. I could picture the insipid green wards and the big ward sister not taking no for an answer. I could picture my mother or something like her, a small head floating on a sea of white cotton as a red tide of blood oozed towards her like lava I could picture bottles clanking and rattling down the corridors or metal trolleys, fresh, white and full of the reconstituted powder that had once been the milk of larger abler animals what I couldn't picture was me the little vampire in the midst of all the melodrama, the source of all the worry and unease that's how come you've got a delicate stomach she said they made me breastfeed you'd a bad start Every time she said this, there was a pause. I knew what was coming next. So did she. If I'd known you were coming, she'd say eventually. If I'd found out, things would have been different. I had no reason to doubt her meaning or that her meaning was less than sincere. Things would have been different. Decades on, when my mother was delirious and thinking she was going to die, she let slip, she'd miscarried another twice after me there should have been God help us more maybe I'd put her on her guard seized all the chances and left my found out, flushed out little siblings with none maybe on the other hand her body had made those decisions alone it was never clear, never clarified never referred to again I was as my sister reminded me every single day bloody lucky to be here at all She'd Kent, you were coming, she'd say. Nobody needed to say the rest.
3: Thank you. Thank you. That was nice. But I've got a problem, because as you read this, as a reader, not obviously as a writer, because yeah. you wrote it, you keep flicking back this very this very passage. You keep, of course, flipping, flicking back to the picture. Uh-huh. And the picture and the words don't quite match because the picture's been photoshopped so you look for the ashtray and you look for the doll and you look for the remnants of the room and they're not there it's a cheat Janice I want to know what you think you're up to, the point is um, I would like to talk about the difference if there is any and there is nowhere actually except on the blurb in the front um, where it says this is a memoir, mm-hmm. um, and you mentioned that it's a fiction. Uh, so could you talk about the difference, if you see any, or what, what you see as the difference between memoir and fiction? I can, but it depends how long you've got. This We've got a, about 25 minutes, and then I won't have that's to ask you any more enough. questions.
2: Yeah, almost <laughs> enough. This, I, I, I knew, I kind of knew in my bones that Jenny was going was, was, was to ask me this, because Jenny, um, um, one of Jenny's books in particular crosses a kind of uh, travelogue and a memoir boundary and moves around and plays with it in such a clever way. Um, I read it when I was all alone in Jura and it saved me from going mad. It was either going to do that or do the opposite, Jenny, I wasn't sure which. And it, it, it was a tremendous book just to hold on to and stay afloat with. And I've never been a fan of genre. I've never been a particular fan of something being easily identifiable as what it is. My favorite game as a child was a picture of something from an unusual angle. Can you guess what this is? And it was always far better fun guessing bizarre things that it might be, or could easily be, than actually knowing what it was. And most of the time, I would not turn the answers the right way around to find out what it was. I just didn't want to know. It was much better fun playing and squeezing and kind of seeing where you could take the idea. And I've always been the same with form, I think. And the first book I wrote was, it's that people get round it. The folk who need to put these things into categories as well you know, Ms Diskey, are people who uh, market you and people who publish you. They need to know where to stick it on a bookshelf, basically. And they don't want you on too many bookshelves, heaven forfend. They don't want you all round the shop. So they want one particular place to put you. And I think this is classified somewhere It says memoir on the back in tiny purple letters. That was as far as I could bargain. The magnificent Bella Shand, who knocked this book into a shape where it could be published, said to me, it's it's kind of wanting to have it both ways. It's like a novel and it's like a memoir at the same time. And I said, yes, thank you very much, before I realised it was a criticism. I hadn't quite grasped that what she wanted me to do was kind of pick one. I didn't want to pick one. So it begins with stuff that I couldn't possibly have known, but have been told. Every single one of us have to take on trust. What turns out often to be a load of nonsense about how we were brought up. May I ask how many of you know the story of your own birth, for example? Oh, one! My God, is that all really? Two. Two people know the story of their own. This is more prevalent than I thought. I thought this was a Scottish thing, that people were so repressed. That they didn't mention ever having been pregnant let alone the story of what happened when they were and that i knew anything about it seemed a source of wonder to me but it was years later after my mother died a friend told me she didn't even know you were coming and it made complete sense <laughs> it made because com- i didn't know what if i'd kent you were coming men I, I had no idea what that meant adults say things that you don't grasp when you're small you assume it is the effect of adulthood upon the brain. You assume it's something you don't know, that you're at fault. I didn't know what she was talking about half the time, because not only did she have me when she was of menopausal age, I was there for, she had been had by her mother when her mother was of menopausal age. My granny was 75 when I was born. This made me fairly anomalous. If we went to family gatherings or weddings, I was the only one who was tiny. My cousins were all married with kids of their own, most of them older than me. And I just therefore assumed that most of the world was something I knew nothing about. I was there to watch it. And to get anything of this story about how I was born, therefore, seemed to me to be the starting place. Because I didn't know whether it was true. I didn't know whether it was a fiction. I didn't know whether it was right enough. And it seems to me the logical place to start. Where do you start a story? When somebody's born? And so I had to put in what might have been a fiction, what might not have been a fiction, and it kind of set the tenor for the whole thing. As did this photo, Jenny is just pointing out perspicaciously, and I hope with her tongue at least partly in her cheek, that this is a cheat. There are three in this series. People didn't have, I'm starting to feel so old. People didn't have cameras in those days. They didn't have their own private cameras. You maybe knew somebody with a box brownie, or you got a man round and a man would come round with a thing like an umbrella, and a flashy thing, and he would do the whole cheese bit with you in the front room. Nobody dressed like that normally in Salkerts in 1960. I don't want you to think these are normal clothes. You're just thinking, ah, Scottish, very exotic. It's not that. We dolled up. It was like you got dressed up when the doctor was... I I remember getting hustled out of bed to put on brand new pyjamas because the doctor was on his way when I had the measles. The photographer coming was even more serious. You got your very, very best stuff out the cupboard. So all of these photographs are fictions. This is supposed to be as true as it gets, is it not? Pictures are supposed to tell you the truth. That doesn't tell you anything about how we lived. The fact that there, there is the fag burn, I insist that the fag okay. burn is actually there. Yeah. We have got the cigarette burn. My mother would be mortified. I went round uh, on, a, on a tour of uh, Waterstones bookshops recently, signing books, and assiduously was sticking all the two for one or whatever it is stickers on it. <laughs> on, on this, so my mother wouldn't know I had betrayed the fact that her auntie <laughs> Macassar had a fag burn on it. But their hair is all done up. They're wearing their very best things. I'm in a party frock. It was the only party frock I possessed, and you can see from the expression of my face it is already do we, but there I am, jammed into it with the buttons not done up at the back to make a good face for the photographer. Now if that's where it's going to start, do you seriously expect I'm going to abandon the idea of how do you know what's true, how do you not know what's true on the way through? Quite apart from anything else, it takes an exceptional memoir for me to have an interest in it. Why should you be remotely interested in anybody else's life? What is interesting is trying to find your place in the world and how you fit in it. We read about the lives of others and we read fiction to try and find something more solid out about ourselves and where we place against that, surely. I think that's part of the role, part of the sacred role of fiction in the world is to try and make us realise how much more out there there is than we might otherwise be aware of and expand the possibilities for where we might fit or how we might think about how the world is put together. So I didn't want to, that's one reason why, one reason, one of many reasons why it's called This Is Not About Me. I didn't want to say this is the terribly exotic story of my childhood. I don't think it's that exotic. I think it resonates. What interests me is the commonality that this story might have, which is set in a different place to where you were brought up, which contains different people to the people you knew who made you while you were growing up. But I bet you, you recognize some of the confusion and what does that mean and things whizzing past your ears. The whole experience of childhood, I think, is what just happened there and forging your way forward somehow and that was what I wanted to get across, that was the thing it was about, so I wanted it to read like a novel. So I've used as much factual detail as I can, but I'm acutely aware that the stories we tell about our own lives are often either elaborated or full of things we've misremembered, or things that we've written over the top of, or several memories clustered together. My own son is 16, and when I ask him about his childhood, he fudges things about when he was five together with things when he was 12, and he seems to have no idea that he was a completely different eye level even when when these things were happening. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we all of us do that. It's the texture of the experience that makes the things come together. So it was important for me to try and get that texture right, which is why there's so much physical detail in there, because the more you stand in the territory you come from, the stronger a position you're in to reach out your hands. Hold somebody else's and say, where do you stand? You're actually in a position to be stronger then. So it's got lots of physical detail and lots of geographical detail and lots of Scottish detail, but I insist it's not a book about Scotland and it's not a book about me. I think it's a book about the experience of growing up and how we become who we are. And part of that is telling ourselves the story of our own lives. By definition, the story of your own life is a fiction. Does that answer the question?
3: (laughs) It begins. (laughs) (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. yeah I, I absolutely I feel that well, I'm glad to know I'm not the only person who feels screwed by publishers and book <laughs> sellers I, mean, I, mean, six, I, mean, six, I, I
1: wouldn't quite like write one trial, thing or the other
3: uh, it is a problem though isn't it because because it isn't necessarily how you you want to write to what extent for example do you feel you have to write the truth whatever that is or what is you know uh, it's,
2: it's very important to to write the truth, but part of writing the truth is being aware that you're also writing a fiction. You're writing it through one set of eyes. The truth, if it was anything, ought to be universal. Ergo, there's not really any such thing.
3: Well, that's right. right? But what happens to the reader who, like it or not, is presented with something that's called a memoir? I suspect quite a lot of mem- the memoirs, quite a lot of readers <laughs> are also memoirs, quite a lot of readers will suppose that there's something called... The truth, as opposed to when they're reading a fiction, when they think that you're you, the writer, are free to mm-hmm. do what you like. Do you feel free to do what you like, whatever you're writing? Well, oh, James, that's really hard stuff. I'm
2: sorry. Yes, yes, and you're not sorry at all. I'm not right? um, yeah. it's, it's it's a yes and no one mm. uh, that that you, you have to be true to something. Otherwise, you'd get lost and bored. You would never finish a book if you weren't trying to be true to something. You're trying to chisel something clean. And it's, it's it's often a very difficult thing to do. So you have to have a raison d'etre. You have to have an MO. You have to know what you're trying to do. And with this, it was trying to get those textures right. As long as I got the textures right, there are conversations in here I couldn't possibly remember. There are whole conversations, screaming matches, between my mother and my sister. and I couldn't possibly remember every single word. But I remember being in those rooms And I remember what it felt like to be in those rooms, and I remember the tenor of the conversation in those rooms. And therefore, it's my job to render that for a reader to be like me being in those rooms. Otherwise, I, I am being a universal truth. I have to say, this is through my eyes. This is what the texture of this was like through it. So I'm acutely aware that I'm making it up in order to not make it up, if you see what I mean. I'm being awfully tricksy here. I once I had a, a wonderful book that somebody bought me when I was 16. My very first gay friend bought me a book. It was called Camp, The Lie That Tells the Truth. <laughs> Any of you know this book? Absolutely wonderful book. And it was about playing with this idea that there is a makeup, there is a face you present that is a lie that tells the truth. So that's what it is. Am I still being tricksy?
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> It's what you do for a living, yeah. surely. Being a writer is to be um, tricksy, isn't it? I'm, I'm worried, you see, also, I'm not worried, I'm just interested and excited about the idea of memory as well. I mean, you mm. say you remember certain things. You obviously don't remember absolutely the conversations you had, but you remember being there. How real is that? How real is the remembering of being there? I mean, my memory, for example, when I, you know, Think about something that happened to me when I was seven. I realised, unbelievably late in life, um, was of the whole picture with me in it. And I, you know, I'm as i as were as a camera's eye view. You can actually see, see yourself. Me. Yeah, yeah. And so you yeah. then have to ask, well, what kind of memory is it? it can't be a memory. Um, so do you have? I mean, do you have to trust part of your memory, or do you just have to translate? It, what you think of as a memory. I mean, memory is deceitful. Mm-hmm.
2: Some, some memories I see myself in, but I think that's also a function of our job, or our mm-hmm. day job at mm-hmm. least, which is, in, is, is placing people <coughs> in scenarios, mm-hmm. people that you've sort of made up. My, my last book was about the life of Wieck Schumann, who was arguably the finest 19th century virtuosa who ever lived, and uh, she was the wife of Robert Schumann. and trying to imagine my way into that life Um, My German is execrable. I have no experience of the 19th century, and therefore the entire thing had to be based on intelligent reading and placing and imagining how these people might talk to each other from other people's bios, from their own words, where possible to try and nab their own words because they were effusive letter and diary writers and put that there. This was actually no different. You place yourself as a character. Mm. Now, of course you're gonna do that. I'm naming myself here. There is somebody called Janice in this book, but she's not me now. And the last thing I wanted to do is be clever, clever adult. Well, of course, what's really happening here and reinterpreting and refleshing? The ab- and absolutely no way do I want to interpret this child's experience. I want to get out the way. This is another reason why it's called not. This is not about me. I want to get out the way and let you in, and say this is you in this room. <laughs> How does this feel to you? How does this feel to you? And the act of joining, the act of the reader and the writer joining, which is the most intimate experience, lonely sorts like ourselves tend to have. I'm perhaps speaking a bit too much for you there, but certainly <laughs> I, it's that is the intimate experience you're looking for. I think most writers are nervous people. And the way to have your most intimate experience is by writing something down, it's as good as you can make it, and then you hand it over to other people who go away, get between the sheets with it, and interpret the thing for themselves, how sexy is that? It's sexy with absolute safety. It's intimacy with absolute safety, and it's what I'm actually, in a funny way, although I only admit it to myself at this stage in my life, it's what I'm actually looking for, if you read any Montaigne, for example, who said I, I commit things to paper I would not confess to a living soul. There are things you are happy to write down because you know you're not gonna have to impress these people personally, which seems a rather futile cause. You're he simply didn't gonna do to, he didn't do no That's because they hadn't been invented, I'm sure he might have. Yeah, have be having been offered the, the opportunity. So it's it, it it's about making that 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 intimacy. As present as you can and therefore of course there's a truthfulness to it you're you're, you're aiming to make it as true to something the, the, the reader can extend but you don't make up the facts you don't ball it up as with Clara Schumann I didn't invent her husband's illness I didn't make it more exciting as an illness I didn't turn into a different illness because a different illness would have been a more fascinating illness you have to make it the right things and it's because they are those things that the intrinsic interest comes from in other words you take something that's as plain as it is And like a chef, I suppose, make the most exciting dish out of it you can. You're maybe adding a few things, you're sometimes taking a few things
3: away, but it's the same essential ingredients. Yeah, I was very impressed with your English teacher, actually, Um, when you wrote a play to overcome a deficiency that you were having. Um, And she gave it back to you like a proper editor. It was a very early experience of of editing, I think, Um, and said... Writing is not about me, me, me. Which, of course, most people would think it was, wouldn't they? Uh, particularly if it's what they call non-fiction and autobi- autobiography. But I absolutely understood that. Did you want? To, I mean, I didn't read that as a. I wasn't critical of that statement no. of hers. In fact, it would have turned me into a writer at the, on the spot.
2: Oh, well, I was horrified by it at the time. Because yeah. I thought I was finished. Yes. You know, you know when, well, when, you, when, you, when you when you go to the, the, the cinema. Mm. And you see that, and they go, the end. Yeah. And then they're like a fag. (laughs) And it's it's all done. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the start. There's a whole dose of stuff that you have to do after that where you integrate and you fuse it. And that's actually the bit I like. But at the time I was horrified. I thought, oh, I get to be in it now. I've written the play, I get the lead role. It was that obvious to me. It was The whole thing was a kind of ego trip, and I was horrified. But of course, writing isn't about you. I think that's an unfortunate thing we get. It's a hangover from the romantics, who have been portrayed in bad American movies as people who were just far too sensitive to live. And they were telling you about how sensitive they were. They're not doing anything of the sort. And no artist worth their salt is telling you about them. They're telling you about something that they hope is to do with...
3: You. I don't even know if that's true. I'm just telling. Oh. I would I would with I would really blank out the reader as well that we really? don't have to agree really on all this. I hope not. Oh. Oh, <sighs> yes. Okay, let's go to this child who is you and isn't you, or is you and is you. Yeah. Um, she's a silent child. The centre of her existence is that she's silent, she responds to what is nice and what isn't nice in silence, Mm -hmm. Um, which also relates to goodness. She's a good girl, she appears to be a good girl. Mm -hmm. Um, I sense badness coming along somewhere later on, but at the moment, she's a good girl. And uh, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be the silent, what's the silent child all about? Well, it, it was. Um, I was confused a lot of the time.
2: I was very young, compared to the other people, the cousins that I should have been able to play with. They were married with children of their own, who themselves were older than me, and who didn't want to play with me because I was a baby and I, you know, I needed looking after and I was a pain. So um, I was I was on my own very often, which makes you silent. And watching things, um, I remember being fascinated. I desperately wanted to know what was going on. Um, I found adults very interesting, as well as very confusing. I sometimes found them very frightening, and I'm one of these people who when I'm frightened goes completely quiet and still. I um, turned to feminism as though it was going to cure me in the 70s, and went to a screaming workshop. I was the only person in it who couldn't scream no matter what they did. I live in fear of being mugged because I will just acquiesce. I don't don't know what it is, I'm just incapable of raising a big fuss about myself and that's come from being small because I wanted to get it. I thought if I knew what was going on I would be safe. I suppose that's why I thought books would save me. Books told you why people did things. It took me a long time to work out that the people who wrote the books were usually making up why those people did things and it wasn't true at all and then you turn to non-fiction and often that doesn't explain anything, it makes things a lot more complicated. And being silent, I suppose, was just a way of taking it in. At one time I wanted to be a painter. Mm. I thought painters told the truth because they just showed you what was there and what it was like for them to look at
3: Mm.
2: what was there. Unfortunately I did not have the skill, which was a big drawback, Um, so I fell back on words and a large part of the time, I think what I'm trying to do is simply say, "This is what's here," almost as though I'm leaving you with the burden of you work out what the hell it <laughs> what the hell it actually means, because most of the time I don't know, and I still don't. So the silent child is someone who's trying to <laughs> get it. Well, I wasn't silent. I, I did, however, sing. Yes, I, s- I sang at the yes. top of a hat. Yeah. I don't anymore so nobody asks it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I was rather hoping didn't <laughs> <you can> sing for <laughs>
2: a <laughs> No, Only when I'm extremely drunk at weddings. But you've no, had really several. I've had several yes but yeah. not enough oh, no I mean right. extremely. Mm. Um, I used I, I used to sing all the time and that was a nice thing again the uh, the, the at a later stage in my life I wanted to be a musician because mm. I thought they told they told you the truth about others.
3: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Oh God, it's world. much better being anything than a writer, isn't it? I mean, you know, like, really yeah, the, the, musician,
2: the, the, artist. I, I, I would agree with you. This is last resort. This Yeah, this was the only one I. That's <laughs> yeah. the only I could manage to a certain extent. Last least. result. I mean I couldn't really, Yeah, again yeah, okay, I, I kind have of flunked the music on the on the talent and the sheer grind basis. But I, I sang and that was a saving grace. And I think a lot of people do that, especially nowadays. We have lost our articulation to it's Elvis. Elvis changed the world in a lot of ways. I know he didn't in a lot of other ways, but Elvis changed the world in a lot of ways in that he gave you song lyrics that you could sing along to that you didn't feel like a klutz with. You didn't have to be Mario Lanza. You could actually sing along with this stuff and get into the feeling of what it would be like to be that wicked person, and I suppose that's where the bad girl got out, Mm. was singing
3: the songs. It was the only place she had the chance to get out. It sounds quite demonic, as you describe it at times, that, yes, you've been taken over in some way. But you nonetheless describe yourself in this as, you know, it's, you say, my it's my job to be good. It mm. was your job to be good. Um, and there's a terrible moment when you go to school and you discover you don't like gym and you're no good at gym. You didn't call it gym because you're Scottish. I called it drill. Drill. That's it, drill. But I'm, I'm going to call it, it gym because oh, I'm no, not I Scottish. Anyway, you were crap. I was drill absolutely drill. crap at drill. And brain. you were terrified because you didn't want your mother no and Cora who will talk about it no minute. I didn't want them knowing it was, just,
2: it was just just I mean I was meant to be good at everything that's my mother kept saying that you'll be good at the school you'll be good at this that and the next thing and I thought it was true well it was true except for the drill it was true but it was a pressure I yeah. mean I, I hadn't realized it was just her saying this I thought I thought she had a kind of she, she knew something Santa had told her what I was going to do with my life and I was going to be good, and that was how it was. There was enough trouble in the house. My sister was a terrible troublemaker. The bad girl places had all been taken Yeah. by one person. There was only one place left, and that was the good girl job. And I was wee, so I got dumped with it. And my job was to be good at stuff, but not only good at stuff, but top at stuff at school. Yes, mm. there's a I rotten moment when
3: you, when you came joint first. Oh, yeah. And all hell broke Yeah. yeah. Joy first wasn't good in
2: it. no first equals well, nothing I remember that first equal is nothing um, it's it it's took me a long time to despise people who win prizes on the grounds that first ought to be nothing <laughs> <laughs> not nothing but you know what I mean it's it's not as important as some people make it out to be there are lots of things to do with your life that are far more important than being top at something you never grow up if what's obsessing you is being top at something and it, it was it was, uh, it was drilled in. A lot. I'm amazed that you didn't call it drill because that was a post-war thing. Does anybody anybody else, else here know what drill was? It drill? No. See, you're Scottish, but you know. So this this is clearly it, it clearly is a Scottish thing. It was, it was because the, the men who'd been in the army
3: yeah
2: came back and got jobs as gym teachers, and they, they they didn't want it having a, I don't know, a kind of homosexual name like gym or PE. They wanted it being called drill.
3: Drill.
2: I mean, we used to get we used to get marched. We used to get marks. It was ludicrous to this. I'm really glad it was crap at it. But at the time, mm. it was a big deal. It was the one thing I couldn't do.
3: Mm. That's a huge burden, isn't it? I think we've got to talk about Cora at this mm. point. Cora, for those of you who haven't read the book, well, if you come from the outside, Cora is psychotic, really. <laughs>
1: um,
3: you know, not to yeah. words. On the other hand, she's also <laughs> your sister. Mm-hmm. And what you've contrived to do, which impressed me enormously, is both your mother and your sister become extraordinarily lovable. I mean, I was continually shocked by, <coughs> by Cora at her worst, basically, because I read her through, through your eyes, and she was loved. You know, I mean, it's, it's no question that she was. As Reading it as an adult and not involved, she's... She's a disaster, she's a catastrophe as a sister, and, and I suspect as a person. I mean, you know, she's not in control much of the time.
0: Tell
2: us about Cora, Kenny. Cora, Cora was my sister. She was 17 years older than me, but I grew up thinking she was 22 years older than me. Our house was full of lies and stories. And I thought she was 22 years older than me, probably because she had her first baby at 16, and my mother was kidding on that things were more respectable than they, in fact, were. Um, She got married to get away from my father. I don't know what the story was there. I wasn't even around. My mother and my sister were pregnant at the same time. And I used to tell myself in moments of despair I could have been my sister's kid, be grateful. (laughs) Could have been much worse. Um, I think my sister wanted an awful lot from life. And she had a child very young, decided that this was rubbish, and in some ways you could turn this, if you were vet, you know like, the kind, there are people who can turn Sarah Jessica Parker into a feminist icon.
0: Mm.
2: It escapes me, but there are people who do it. And if you wanted to, you could turn Cora yeah,
3: into she's a, got rage. Into she a thought, feminist
2: icon. She yeah, dumped yeah. her baby, she thought this is rubbish, this isn't going to get me anywhere. She dumped her baby, she dumped her husband. And she came back home with a suitcase and a packet of fa- <laughs> and a packet of fags and her frocks, her party frocks. And she went out and she wanted a good time. And who gave you a good time? Men, men with quiffs. Those are the men who give it's you a, a good time. Fash. Absolutely, men with quiffs give you a good time. And she went out to the Bobby Jones Dance Hall in air and they would be home with a different fella every other mm-hmm. night. She was kind of a a drama queen, kind of a drag queen in a funny way. You know, she dolled up, she put the face on, she put on the writs, and she went out there. And when I was six, I thought that was, I thought that was staggeringly wonderful. It was like watching Marilyn Monroe metamorphose in front of your very eyes. But she also had a lot of rage because life isn't. Wasn't as glamorous as it should have been. You went to the Bobby Jones, and you came home with your ankles kicked because there were too many dancers, and they were all too close. And some bloke would try something on, and he'd not even given you a box of chocolates. I remember saying, "You know, there was." There should have been a ritual, and there wasn't one. And she'd been dumped into this life that she didn't particularly want. She wanted glamour, and there was somebody at home who was small enough to take it out on, and not too much about it, not too much about it, and who didn't scream ever. You didn't scream, and that was me. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and that was me. But, but it was serious violence. It was right? serious violence. Yeah.
3: Yeah. She burned you. She, she did all sorts. She pulled your hair. She,
2: she did all sorts of horrible yeah. things. But even, I mean, even at the time, she terrified me to death. Mm. But I could still see.
3: Yeah.
2: It wasn't about me. Yeah. I still knew it wasn't yeah. me. She, she would have done it if, if we'd had a dog. The dog would have got it. If, if, if there had been, if the, if there had been a son, I'm sure the boy would have got it. If she'd stay, if she'd kept an own child, I'm sure he would have got it. She just wanted to punch the living daylights out of something, out of rage, and I was very handy. And, I, 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 and in a funny way, I can see why, because it had been her and my mother for 17 mm. years before the whippersnapper showed up. She was going to be pissed off at me. Mm. She was going to be annoyed about me. But
3: sometimes she's very warm. And treats you like a human being almost. Oh she was with, with you. She, she was
2: lovely at times. Yeah. She she bought she um, you you never forget who, who gives you your first makeup lesson. Mm-hmm. You never forget who gives you your first lipstick. At least I don't. I better say I. I
3: you keep, keep drawing, drawing you into at this, this point journey. Yes, yeah, I keep drawing. Yes, drawing so
2: I, I never forgot who gave me my first lipstick. Who gave me my, my first Mickey Mouse toy. I was so excited I was sick and its tail fell off. <laughs> I don't think the sick and the tail falling off were kind of necessarily synchronicities the way I just implied they were there, but it was a broken... It, I mean, it, she, she did wonderful things, and then immediately she would <laughs> take them away. And I think probably, I don't know if she was psychotic, but it's, it struck me writing the, the book. Extreme saying that. But, well, yeah. I think she was probably manic. Yes. I think she was yes. probably ill. Yes. And even as a child, I could see that she would take these turns where she turned into someone else. And mm. I did the classic splitting thing. There was bad Nora, mm. and there was exciting Nora, and exciting Nora. Her real name was Nora. This is another trick in the book, whereby the, the, the names mm-hmm. of everybody except me have been changed by one letter or by two letters to, again, insist on the characterization mm. part of what is going on. But my, my, my sister used to take me to Italian cafes, So many English people here knew didn't have these things. Italian cafes are what started the Fish and Chip Institution. They were the first people to do the deep fried Mars bar, which does exist, it is not a joke. And they did homemade ice cream. My husband is English. And I remember saying to him, you mean you've never been to an Italian cafes from Windsor? I said, what did you do for ice cream? He said, we had walls. And my heart broke. What a dreadful way to raise a child, to pretend <laughs> that this stuff is ice cream, it's not ice cream. My sister used to take me and buy me knickerbocker glories, served by real Italians, in a real Italian cafe, and you thought you were the bee's knees. Again, you don't forget someone who does that. So there was enormous love for her, and she certainly had a way with her. Nora's boyfriends were faithful to her until the day she died. There was always a man. I met her in the street once when she was fifty-four. She was wearing football socks, a mini skirt, She had her hair piled up high in her head, and a V-neck jumper that was, you know, with loads of bras showing. And I said, "What are you doing now?" She said, "I'm running a school." <laughs> I said, "How did you mean?" I'm school secretary. I I said, "Have you still got that boyfriend?" That, uh, what's his name? Robert? No, he died. I said, "I'm so sorry." She said, "Sorry, right. I've got you. You know, she was just she was always completely a survivor, and there is something admirable about that. Mm.
3: She was also, in, a, in another sense, of, um, your younger sister, wasn't she? Uh, mean, yeah, she was the little sister. She was. It? I mean, she, she arrived after you did, as far as you were concerned. Yeah, that's she, right. <laughs> that's right. Actually, yes. Yeah. And uh, it seems to me that you, all the way through, were responsible, felt responsible for her when she was when she was good, or whether she wasn't good. So, in a sense, I, it struck me that you were the older
2: child. Yeah, kid, kids know, I think, Jenny, um, when someone's out of control. Mm. They will try and look but after a parent. It's terrifying, isn't it? Do of do course you? it's yeah. terrifying. But I mean, you know this. You will try and look after a parent when they look well, as if they're, if they're not on really top have of it. To. Only if you really have to. But if you have to, at least you're there and you feel you do have to do that. i, and I just I said say that I
3: there was a lot more of. I mean, you know, I didn't have a. A huge amount of affection for my family, really, such as it was. I wasn't I didn't have any brothers and sisters, but there is an enormous amount of love, not just for Cora, but also for your mother, um, mm. and it comes across quite powerfully. Uh, you don't, you're not angry, it seems to me, or you don't appear to be angry in this um, with anybody much. No. No, you can recognise that a situation's rotten without blaming
2: somebody for it. We've got into blame culture in this country in a big way. You know, there's been a real disaster. It can't just be shit happens. Somebody's got to be blamed. Somebody has to be fired. Um, Sometimes things just happen, you know, and it was was how things Mm. fell out. Poverty was as much Mm. the problem Mm. as anything else. And my mother had the nerve to leave a man, at supposedly the swinging 60s, when it was supposed to be sexually liberated. And it wasn't. She could find nowhere to live and she had the nerve to leave a man. And I assumed it was for my sake because Mm. he was violent. Mm.
3: No, it was heroic. I mean, that Um, passage where she's, before he dies um, is, you know, she she works.
2: And And it it was, it was dinned into me Mm. and I resented Mm. having to be grateful all the time. Mm. (laughs) I really resented having to be grateful all the time. But now, I think, I think I think you hit something when you, when, when you hit your fifties and beyond. I think you you hit an age where you begin to be a lot more grateful for the things that were good than annoyed about the things that were bad. maybe
3: it's that's encouraging, it. isn't it? <laughs> I, hope, I hope I get there I think having got to my sixties eventually I'm sure you know, I'll mature one sometime or. other. And, oh I forgot about the reading I'm so sorry can you read some more I, I could do you have me time Jenny mm-hmm. I believe so because the, the man in charge has said so mm-hmm.
2: Andrew how long should I read for five, minutes. five. <laughs> bloody hell right okay I'll give it my best shot Jenny's just been talking about Cora um, this is this is my sister and I hope with a little bit of Why I found her very very lovable as well is completely terrifying at the same time. There's no excuse in this day and age for an ugly woman. Cora could talk and put on eyeliner at the same time. You show me a woman it's ugly, she said, mouth gaping as she held the brush dead steady, one pinky cocked, and I'll show a woman who's an ugly bitch. She blinked twice, checked her work, and then turned full on me. Her face was blanked out with panstick, even the lips, so she looked freshly dipped in orange wax. Against this backdrop, her teeth looked yellow like a dog's. I knew they were false and wondered if they were sore. Ta-da, she said. Come on, what do you think? Good, I said. It wasn't true, but she had just kicked off. There was a lot more to go. All I had to do was sit back on the end of the bed and shut up, and the whole thing would unfold like magic before my very eyes. She sat at the dressing table in an underskirt and a bra to get done up, all black straps and cleavage with red wheels where the elastic was digging in. The least I could do was be encouraging. I'd watched it enough to know the drill as well as she did. The pan stick undercoat came first. That was a greasy tan crayon slicked up from a navy blue Max Factor case, painted on in stripes, and then slapped around to make it spread and settle. Everything else went on after this. That's how come you call it foundation, right? That's the first bit. Eyeshadow was next and always green. Black hair, green eyeshadow. It was, she said, a natural law. The mascara lived in a box of its own with a tiny brush like the one you took animal hair off coats with. You spat into the black stuff and then rubbed the brush in till it was clogged with oozy black jam. Then you were ready to apply. The more coats, the bigger the night out. The Bobby Jones dance hall was a three coat event, requiring lots of fluttering and eye-rolling. After that came the liner, thin and black, and flicked up at the sides like Maria Callas. A wee pencil, only the size of half a thumb, drew on the eyebrows. She only had half eyebrows, so the pencil had to be sharp and her hand steady. That done, she sat back, poking her tongue into one cheek as she checked the separate parts of herself in the mirror. There was always more. Powder on the sides of the nose, four, seven, eleven behind the ears and on each wrist, rendered her ready for a frock. Lipstick and hairspray after, she said. Frock first, lipstick after, you think about it. Her best frocks were sleeveless with side zips, but the necks were intact circles that needed to be guided over her comb back carefully, then patted down before the zip was done up and the construction complete. Cora's bare skin, always reminded me of pork links. So I was glad she never asked for any help with the zips. But touching was not something our family did. I remained of wire safe on the yellow bedspread as she hokey-cokeyed her way into columns of cloth, arms first. She had four dresses, but the navy satin sprinkled with yellow was the best. Cinched waist corset tight and low-cut with tiny puffed straps that she pulled over her shoulders to look like an Italian. Her stockings, hooked double to a dangly iron of suspenders, came next, followed by shoes, a handbag hardly worth the bother, elbow-length gloves and a dress watch round the wrist. And that was her into the final lap. Putting on lipstick in gloves could not have been easy. But that was how she did it, kissing her lips in and out to check she had covered every eventuality, whatever she did with her mouth last thing was a beauty spot with a licked tip of an eyebrow pencil, a full stop above her lip and another on the fat curve of the right breast where it rose a full moon over the edge of midnight satin. Like Rome, Cora did not build in a day (laughs) but she was glorious to behold a miracle of engineering and design, from her cantilevered bra to her dead straight seams. She could have had no idea how beautiful she looked, I thought. How wholly free, chucking a swing coat over her shoulders and bolting for the door. You'll no be late, my mother shouted. Cora, you listening, I'm saying. Don't be late, to the diminishing echo of her kitten heels, Cora didn't even answer. I imagined everybody on the block looked out of the window to catch a glimpse of the mysterious princess running down our dreary little six house lane towards the glitter ball shadows and whatever they concealed, but not Cora. She just kept going like the wicked queen in Snow White, running to the dungeons despite herself ignoring the bones beneath her feet, (laughs) desperate to know the answers to terrible questions. She's for it one day, my mother always said, checking the window when there was nothing left to see. She'll be found dead, strangled up a close one day by her own (laughs) nylons. Who she was telling was anybody's guess. Hi Janice. Hello.
0: How long did
2: the memoir take you to write? How long did it take to write it? Well, I I remember I was at a a prize ceremony not long ago and somebody asked Ali Smith, how long did it take you to write Girl Meets Boy? And she said 41 years. (laughs) Um, So this would be 52, I guess. Um, 52 years and in physical terms, when I actually sat down and knew that that's what I was doing, I would say about two and a half years, three years we've all got stuff in our heads and an awful lot of us promise ourselves that one day we'll write a book, you know, the actual the cure for that is sitting down trying to write it um, I wasn't very sure if I was going to get to the end of this one to tell you the truth, it should have ended when I was 22, but I kept unearthing so many tiny little details that I found interesting and that I felt were more truthful, if you like, than Mm-hmm. interpreting what was going on, that I put a lot of detail in it. Does, I'm, I'm 12, just about to turn 12 when it finishes. Um, I think I'm, I start at age zero and I'm, gosh, I think it's page 120 before I'm five, so I mean it's uh, memory packed, yes. So yeah, 52 years and two and a half is the answer.
0: Hello. Hi. Um, um, did you arrive at that, that, that sort of structure of the book quite quickly, or were you sort of te- because you were talking about um, the idea of it not being about you and about the idea of fiction? I was just wondering whether, whether you were you thought about doing other kind of structures for you know? I was just thinking there's a French writer Georges Perec when he did Double Vert he mixed fiction uh-huh. and biography. So they were sort of like separate. So, so he had sort of like sections which were very much focused on facts uh-huh. and then for uh, other sections which were just pure fiction when uh-huh. I mean, he was dealing with something um, separate. But I was just wondering if you'd just thought about um, that particular... Or had you thought about ever introducing things that were just pure facts, Yeah, you know, splitting I w- narratives? I wouldn't know a pure fact if I failed. Well, for example, I lived at 10 smith street Ah, that sort of thing
2: like like sort of yeah well sure uh there are there are bits of that in it you know there are there are even there's even a date there's a date when i start school um and and stuff there were there were things i had to look up in in old diaries um but not not a lot of that i i the, the french bless them put structure first I don't know why it's so pressingly important, but there are, there, there are very uh, there are society who, who adores their intellectuals. They adore their thinkers, and there are people who can come from the perspective of thinking first and then writing the book. I tend to write the book and then think, what was that about, and try and make the structure better. There's also an instinctual sense, I think, whereby you um, put down the put down what has to come next from a series of gut feelings which I suppose is when you're trying to imagine, the the, the putative reader or a notional reader is quite an important thing to me. Who are you trying to make sense to? And if I read it back to myself and it doesn't make sense first time, and I'm supposed to know what the hell it's about, it certainly won't make sense to any reader. It's about being clear. Um, I don't think bold facts like dates um, when I did history at school, it was dates of battles, dates of dynasties, names of people. I could still rhyme them off, but I know nothing about how those people lived how those battles were fought, what the latest innovations in medical technology were on the battlefield, that's really what would have interested me, that's really what I would have gone for. And when I was writing the last book, Clara, I could have loaded it with historical detail, but I wasn't interested in the historical detail, I was interested in what these people saw every day. So mentioning the types of transport used, it didn't come as a series of facts. It comes as the carriage she's just got into and it's totally unsprung because they don't have the money for a sprung one. It's used in in that way when it's telling actual detail. I suppose the emotion is what comes first with me. I want to get it clear, I want to get it right, I want to get it visceral. And so there will be facts in here but I hope they're in passing. Whereas someone like Mr Perrec, I mean he obviously has a fascination with playing with form, which is his interest. I I have a fascination with really ignoring form as much as I possibly can, and going around the edges of it.
3: I've got two sort
2: of interlocked questions here. The first one is that um, I became a mother recently, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, but on becoming a mother I found myself engaging with literature and life in a a really different way. Like, Beslam didn't mean anything to me until I became a mother, and I Mm realised how dreadful it was in such a visceral way. And becoming a mother yourself, did it make you look back on yourself as a child and and change how you viewed those situations. Yes. And secondly, <laughs> um,
0: I'm, you know sort of looking, reading that story, and thinking about, I just felt such pity, and I wanted to protect you. And you're a lot of the way you've you know you've described this being fiction and metaphor.
2: Is that a distancing technique to prevent people pitying you? Yes. Those are two very easy questions. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, the, the original, <laughs> the original start of the book. Um, which I sent to Bella, and she wasn't very sure whether to put it in or not, and I have actually sometimes read it because it answers such a question, was about my son being born. Yes. And I had always been told, um, "Winds ruin your life. The last thing you want to do is have winds." Yes. And my mother wasn't trying to be hurtful. It was just her experience. She was trying to save me from something. She wasn't trying to be hurtful. It never dawned on her that I had my own particular perspective in what she was saying, which was, you've ruined my life. That wasn't what she was meant to, what she hoped she was telling me. Um, And it was only when I had my... I I didn't have a child until I was 36. And I'd had the opportunities to have them before then, oh yes. But um, I'd either turned them down or things had gone wrong. Um, when I was 36 I thought it's time to actually do this thing. I, I got pregnant by accident and I decided to have the baby and I, it was like coming home. I thought this is, nobody told me this was fabulous. This is just the best thing that's ever happened. I know there are women who have rotten times when they're pregnant. I felt like a galleon. I felt I could sail down the street and people parted like the Red Sea and I felt important for the first time in my bloody life when I was huge. Uh, the, the giving birth part, um, I, I remember when it finished, it was fairly horrendous, uh, but when it finished I thought, right, I'm ready to do that again. I know, I know what it's like now. i had the rehearsal. I'd really like to do this again. It never happened again, which was just how things turned out, but that pivotal moment Of becoming a mother, becoming someone who looks after a child instead of someone who is a child, I think can make an enormous difference to some people. Some people can turn into an adult without doing that. I don't think I would. I don't think I would (laughs) have. I don't think a lot of people do. (laughs) And it was a a really head spinning moment. And I wanted to tell somebody my mother was dead, my father was dead. I didn't think my friends would be very interested because I've had friends who had babies, they were all either much younger than me or much older than me. Um, I wrote to my sister and my sister came and she told me all about her new boyfriend and her new job and she got a dog. Um, She didn't hold the baby once. She did say, what's his name? Is he good? I think that was it. That was the extent of the question. Is he good? You know, again, this a very important question. Is he good? By which she meant, does he sleep? That's what most adults mean by, is he good? Does he sleep? And she went off home, and I remember watching her going away and thinking, I'll probably never see this woman again or want to see her again. And this is, this is the way forward, and that was the way back. So certainly that made a huge... It was the first time I thought about my family as existing, in a funny way. It means something different, I think, to a certain kind of person when they have a child of their own. And certainly, I've got, I mean, this could be anything. You would need to ask a patchy, uh, a psychoanalyst whether um, it was a distancing device or something like that. But of course it is. And um, one very perceptive reviewer, I don't use those uh, words in juxtaposition very often, but
3: one
2: very perceptive re- reviewer wrote something about learning the art of dissociation early on and noticing, I I noticed the screaming noise and worked out it was me. Um, So certainly, I would seem tailor-made for this kind of distancing. That's a very perceptive question. It's because you become a mother, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hello there. Hi. Um, I have a very superficial question. Um, In your other fiction, um, there has always been some form of typographical um, expressionism or experimentalism. Yeah. And say in Trick is to Keep Breathing, Joy's subconscious is mm-hmm. in the margins. And in Clara, there is that page where um, her Worms. name exactly yeah, on Worms. one page. Okay. And in um, Foreign Parts when they walk into the church and it's the windows. Mm-hmm. And, here, and I, I always had the sense that that was, you know, impressions that were too big for words that needed some form of something extra. And in this one, your fictional self is constantly being uh, bombarded with new things, new impressions, and yet you've kept it stylistically clean. And I wanted to know if that was uh, premeditated or it just happened.
2: That, that just happened. In, in the way that the, the experimenting just happens, I'm, I'm so unfrench. it's not true. I, I don't tend to think, I think I'll do this. It happens, and then I think, is that justified? If so, it can stay. If it's not justified, it goes. I don't deliberately experiment, as it were, in order to play with form. Um, those those other things happened because there were times where the words weren't adequate. This time, what she does when the words aren't adequate is she says nothing. And what I asked for was a whole dose of white space. There was a place I wanted five pages of nothing. And then it was, uh, she, she just kind of, she said, you don't actually need that. Uh, by by using the the usual device of flattery. You know, this way they get you around. The writing is good enough. Mm -hmm. The reader will be carried there without you having to give this explicit message. And I (coughs) gave in. So if you think I ought to have gone for it, if you can imagine five pages of blank space every so often, (laughs) that will keep you on side.
1: When you were casting your mind through the memories that you base this fiction on, did you discover that you had some false memories, for example, a particular song playing in the background that couldn't possibly have been playing at the time, or a film that was on that couldn't possibly have been on? Sure. And did you care, given that it's a work of fiction?
2: No. <laughs> Two more really simple... That, yes, these are good questions. Yeah, no, well, of, of, of course you have, but, but I checked it because I know there are people sitting at home with no life whatsoever <laughs> who buy books in order to find the mistake, who look at period dramas to see the television aerials... <coughs> and write in to newspapers furious notes, usually to the mail who truncate them down to the one complaint sentence. Um, I I didn't actually care, but I am scared enough of disgusted Tunbridge Wells to actually go back and check my facts, and I was (laughs) was unaccountably furious recently when somebody said I hadn't researched my sweeties, because I'm actually very good on sweeties. And somebody told me I hadn't researched my speech because I mentioned a Cadbury's cream egg, which had not in fact been current until 1967. And I had said it was current in 1965. Actually, ladies and gentlemen, we had Cadbury's cream-filled eggs in 1962. But I knew that the general public would not know what a Cadbury's cream-filled egg was, and as a sop to public imagination, called it a Cadbury's cream egg. So I'm going to write to Trust and point out to her. <laughs> I did, there were actually Cadbury's cream eggs, so I, I, I did research, I was self-conscious enough and vain enough to actually research and find out that, I, I, I remembered an ambulance as being blue, for example, and I rang up the Scottish Ambulance Historical Society. Bless them, they were so thrilled to have anybody ask them anything. I ran up the Scottish Ambulance Society and they said, no, it was White Hen, was White Ambulance. And of course I remembered it as blue because the light was blue and it had cast a blue light. So if I'd put blue in, I wouldn't have kicked myself. But somebody would have been guaranteed to write in, <laughs> write in and say the ambulance was white. So yes, I, I, I was actually self-conscious and vain enough to check the facts here and there. So I, I've clearly the, the one about the cream egg has hurt me <laughs> a great deal.
1: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.